Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Now, more than ever, our communications are distributed and digitally connected. They are the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smash, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smash enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business critical signals in more than 100 digital communication channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smash portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smash serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. The word culture comes from the Latin word, which means we are able to help things to thrive and grow. Unfortunately, what I see in regulated industries and the thinking of the regulators themselves is a deep misunderstanding of this. They are creating fear-driven cultures. They are holding people accountable to regimes. And until they begin to understand what creates strong human communities, they will continue to get culture wrong. Today's guest outlines what financial services bosses are getting wrong in their efforts to improve the culture of the organisations under their management. He explains the anthropological tools that financial institutions, boards and leaders could use to both better understand the causes of and prevent bad behaviour amongst their employees. And he outlines how he believes both UK regulators and UK regulation needs to change in order to improve conduct within the financial sector. Roger Steer is known professionally as the corporate philosopher. He has spent two decades advising the bosses and boards of some of the UK's largest financial services companies and financial regulators on how to build ethical organisations. Hi, Roger. Welcome to Following the Rules. Hello, Lucy. It's lovely to be here. Well, let's start with a brief overview of your role. For those who may not be familiar with you, could you explain what it is that you do and who you typically advise? So over the last 20 years, I've helped organisations, leaders in organisations in three connected areas, leadership, culture and ethics. And I've been working with organisations within financial services banking, as well as insurance and a little bit in asset management. Organisations such as Barclays, HSBC, RBS, as it then was, and most recently at scale with Nationwide, the world's largest building society. I also advise regulators such as the FCA from about 2002 through to about four or five years ago. And I started as a member of the FRC advisory panel about two years ago. My role there has been specifically advising them on culture across industry sectors, so all listed companies, and talk to them about seeing culture as an environment which is really 
not something that you can understand without understanding anthropology, psychology, sociology, and moral philosophy. And one of the challenges I often face, and no disrespect for people who are qualified lawyers, accountants, auditors, and so on, but if you were going to read and understand culture at university, you'd do an anthropology degree. And I think a lot of the mistakes in the design of culture and the design of regulations around culture have because people have fundamentally misunderstood that it is a hybrid between a humanity and a social science. It is not a hard science. It cannot be determined by having a rigid set of rules. And often I've found that organisations are dealing with leadership, culture and ethics separately. And that's a big mistake because having the right leadership behaviours is crucial to creating cultures which have a well-managed risk and achieve good outcomes for customers and society. And the foundation of that is an understanding of the difference between right and wrong, which incorporates following the rules, but is so much bigger than that. And then as a professional philosopher, I spend quite a lot of time advising senior leaders, boards and executive teams on how to think, how to argue and debate and then make better decisions. Okay. And we're speaking as boards and bosses of UK financial services firms are currently investing significant time and energy into being, well, in some cases seen to be promoting and in other cases genuinely promoting good cultural outcomes at all levels of their institutions. And this is in part being spurred on by the UK's Financial Conduct Authority, which has made clear that it wants firms, it supervises to analyse their culture and how that affects the conduct of their employees. What's your view on what makes good culture within the financial services sector? So great question, Lucy. What tends to work is that when people looking at culture in financial services firms are looking at it from an intellectual discipline that matches the task. So I work closely with anthropologists and psychologists in the work that I do. And we begin by saying, how do we understand the way Homo sapiens behaves in groups? And how does that work in our personal and civic lives? And how might it be different in our working lives? And the reason I'm making that distinction is that we do know how we work as a highly social species. We do know that there are a narrow set of moral values that help us to raise families, form and sustain friendships and other neighbourhood groups. And those moral values are universal and they are universal around the world. And if you want to understand culture, you need to understand the DNA of how we behave in those groups. About a year ago, I was asked by, and I can't name the nation state, but a nation state around about 10 million inhabitants to help them understand what moral values they needed to encourage to have a better society. And so I worked with an anthropologist and I shared with them these universal moral values that I've been referring to. And the first and most important, which is you can imagine in boardrooms, Lucy, when I come up with this and I say the first one is compassion. <laughs> you can actually see the sharp intake of breath. And I say, look, Arthur Schopenhauer, the moral philosopher, reminds us that compassion is the basis of morality. And until we start really thinking and feeling and talking about what it means to be human and understanding what binds us and then what drives us apart, we're not going to have thriving cultures. 
the word culture comes from the Latin word, which means we are able to help things to thrive and grow. Unfortunately, what I see in regulated industries and the thinking of the regulators themselves is a deep misunderstanding of this. They actually are promoting not behaviours which are nurturing and enable people to deliver good outcomes for their customers, to use regulator speech, but they are creating fear-driven cultures. They are holding people accountable to regimes. And until they begin to understand what creates strong human communities, they will continue to get culture wrong. So what red flags do you look for when working with companies in the sector? The red flags I look for are bullying behaviour by individuals. I'm looking for leaders who display what psychologists call dark triad traits. And these are narcissism. So in other words, aren't I wonderful? And it's all about me, not about the team. The next one is Machiavellianism, which is my ability to absolve myself of responsibility, to gameplay, to get what I want through subterfuge. And the third one is psychopathy, which is really about, I really don't care about the impact of my actions on other people. I'm just in it for myself, which is linked with narcissism. Now, in order to do that effectively, you need to really employ clinical or forensic psychologists. But when you've been around a bit, so I'm 65 next month, you begin to have a sixth sense about this. I can just see the people who are dead behind the eyes and realize that these are the people I really need to have a close look at and find evidence of that bullying, toxic behavior. And, and one of the things that I'm constantly questioning, and this is a link through to the senior manager and certification regime, it staggers me that in all the vetting procedures, both internally and by the regulator, certainly for the most senior posts, they are not actually asking people to be vetted by clinical or forensic psychologists, because it's not difficult to actually identify people who display those bullying behaviours. And the research suggests that in a standard population, you're probably looking at about 3% of any normal distribution of people who display these narcissistic, Machiavellian and sociopathic or psychopathic behaviours that rises to over 15% in managerial ranks within any industry sector. Okay, that's really interesting. Obviously, the SMCR is a set of rules introduced after the financial crisis designed to hold senior financial services staff more accountable for their actions. And I would like to get to the government's proposed review of the senior managers and certification regime later. But before we get there, many financial services firms are conducting so-called culture assessments or audits in a bid to measure and map their institutional culture. How should firms approach such projects? Any common mistakes to avoid? Yeah, so what they're doing right is to have a combination of ethnographic interviews and focus groups. So ethnography is an anthropological tool, which basically means going into a tribe, listening to the stories that are being told, asking questions, both at an individual and a group level. And you can find out a lot, especially if you can become a trusted insider. So although they know that you're there to do a job, they trust you to be open and honest about what's going on. And then the other part of it is what we call desktop reviews of documentation. And what you find, certainly as an outsider going in, is that if you're able to get people's trust, and there are ways of doing that, and one of the most important thing is that you report the findings, but don't attach any names or groups to those findings, 
the truth will come out very quickly for the simple reason is that they're dying to unload their pain, if you like, to someone who could help do something about it. And this happens at all levels within organizations. The desktop review, I am not looking really for the content necessarily of all the processes and procedures and documentation and record keeping. I'm looking for things which tell me that everybody's looking for more and more information. They're looking for data, but they don't have any real insight and understanding of what they're doing. And the most insane things I see are boards and executive teams looking at culture dashboards with a rare color scheme, red, amber, green, and think that that's going to tell them what they need to know. The thing that we need to understand about human culture is you can't understand it from a top-down perspective in the same way that you cannot see a crowd in a sports arena from a blimp flying overhead. You can see 50,000 people, but you can't see the expression on their faces and the way they're singing and chanting and dancing and all the rest of it. But if you're down there in the middle of it, you can see and experience something which you just can't see from that level. So what I'm saying there is that you can only understand an organizational culture at what we call the micro or subcultural level. So in other words, the culture that people experience is mostly a function of the behavior of the people they spend most of the day with. So that's their team colleagues, their team leader, obviously other project teams and so on that they get involved in. So board observation is a tried and tested approach, but I teach people in organizations how to be aware of the decision-making processes in a meeting and the cultural environment that's created by the leader and by every member of that team in the way that they ask and answer questions of importance. So I guess the short answer to your question is you need to talk to people, you need to listen to people, you need to look at the insane documentation that is created and generated within an organisation and challenge people to actually summarize any 300-page slide deck of board papers in one question and an answer, for example. And also ask the question, do you actually understand what's going on in every branch or contact center team or every team within every function of your organization? Because if you don't, you won't spot the little red flags that could actually undermine your entire organization. And if you look at some of the scandals we've had in the past, PPI mis-selling was a systemic issue, but it started in small meeting rooms, boardrooms, and when someone designed a good product that was seriously missold in a systemic way. But the fires start small and you cannot spot the red flags from that blimp flying over the stadium. You have to be down in the weeds and talk to real people on the front line. So in a recent interview on this podcast series with the FCA COO, Emily Shepard, when she was asked for the regulator's view on how firms should be measuring their culture, how they should be approaching these culture audits, she said that it was very hard to measure culture, as you've just indicated as well. And the best approach that she would like to see is for CEOs to really get into the weeds of the organisation, to ride in the lift with their employees, to have lunch with them, to really get to know them, to get a sense of the cultural aspects that made the company tick. So it sounds like you might be in agreement with her. So I think Emily Shepherd is onto something when she talks about the CEO riding in the lift and going down and talking to ordinary people. Every leader in an organisation needs to do that. They need to get out there. And that's one of the challenges around hybrid working is that it's very difficult to actually sustain meaningful 
relationships through pixelated screens and microphones. And you can't measure culture because measurement assumes that it's something that can be measured. It can't. Culture is something you can only describe through storytelling and narrative. And I really do want regulators, boards and executives to stop putting percentages on things. I mean, it's a bit like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the supercomputer Deep Thought was asked the question, what is the answer to life, the universe and everything? And Deep Thought's answer was 42. And that's exactly the trap we've fallen into at the moment. And then you get boards and executive teams congratulating themselves because they've had a one or 2% increase in some measure in colleague engagement and failing to understand that's well within the margin of error of any survey. And also, for example, if it goes up from 70 to 71% engagement, they gloss over the fact that 29% of the people are disengaged. And that's a very, very serious issue still to have. So Emily is on to the right thing, but I think it needs to go much further and faster. The challenge for the regulator is it's seeking to measure everything and it needs to stop measuring it and start listening to the stories that are being told boards and executive teams also have to create an environment where normal human beings can display their warmth and compassion which is the root of trust and happiness a big harvard university research project concluded and published in the last few months said that ultimately we're all looking to lead a better life and we measure it in part through happiness by having warm social relationships that's it if you want to be happy you might try and buy those relationships but actually just having warm social relationships is the key to enabling us to achieve fantastic things. Behind that is the fact that we help each other out, we give each other advice when we're asked, we provide support and so on. The flip side of that is people who are mood hoovers, who actually take from us, who don't give back, who are parasitic. And when I'm talking to boards and executive teams about this, I ask them the simple question, you've reacted in a certain way, and it's funny that you reacted when I've used the words love and compassion. But do you not want your customers to love your products and services? Do you not want them to tell other people how much they love your services? Do you not want your investors to love investing in your stock? Do you not want your colleagues to leap out of bed looking forward to enjoying a day's work because they love working with you and your colleagues? That, when you answer those simple questions, you begin to understand how important it is. And it's only by displaying, if you like, that tough love. So I, my view on this is it's about tough love, tough on the issues we're facing, but we can only face these issues and resolve them together. The answer to life, the universe and everything isn't 42, it is love and compassion. Okay. The government has recently announced its plans to review the senior managers and certification regime. You have mentioned that you're surprised that there isn't some kind of psychological test aligned with the application that senior managers have to go through to be certified as someone who's suitable to work in a senior management function or an SMF role. Mm. How else do you think the regime could be improved? Yeah, referencing generally in employment is absolutely not fit for purpose because everybody is scared of the legal consequences of speaking truths or opinions because everyone's saying prove it. So what we have is a focus on tangible things that people can look at. So for example, qualifications or this person was doing this job at another regulated firm for a period of time. But it's very difficult to actually assess the 
personality and the character of the individual unless you do extensive informal background checks. It's the sort of thing that security firms like Kroll do for highly sensitive appointments. The government does it when it comes to the security services. Vetting has to take place. Even in transportation, airline pilots, even bus drivers and tube drivers and train drivers are actually profiled to try and weed out anyone who wants to commit murder-suicide by flying a plane into a mountain or driving a train through a set of buffers. The responsibility, by the way, for this should not be the regulators. I think the regulator should be marking a thorough vetting process by the employer or checking that that is done thoroughly. Because when you're hiring people into these sometimes very senior roles, they are not only responsible for billions of pounds, they are responsible for the lives and livelihoods of millions of people. And I think we should get more serious about it. And stop assuming that just because someone has worked for your direct competitor for two or three years and seems to have come out with an anodyne reference that basically doesn't say anything bad, that that person is fit and proper. The other thing they're failing to do is to actually match those individuals to the culture of the organisation and the fit in the team. Now, in any leadership team, you need diversity of views, but you also need people who share a set of fundamental moral values around decency and care and compassion, fairness, kindness, all of those fundamental moral values that we look for in trusted friends. You should have that level of trust with the people that you work with. Okay, so in terms of how the SMCR could be improved, you would like to see the firms subject to the rules really rethink how they vet these senior managers coming into their ranks. Yeah, because I can't think of other industry sectors where that responsibility is subcontracted to the regulator. And I know the regulator might say, well, it's a bit of a circle here because we want to be able to finally vet someone who's coming in, but they're relying on the information given to them by the firm that wants to employ them. And regulatory references are often flawed and anodyne because of the threat of civil litigation around saying challenging things about individual multi-million pound careers hanging in the balance. And the issue with regulatory references, firms being reluctant to put too much information in or individuals being reluctant for too much information ending up in there is that under the SMCR, those regulatory references must be held on record by the firms that individual has worked for for six years. Uh, Mm. So there was a lot of concern when those rules were first introduced that there would be an aspect of bad behaviour that could be easily explained, for example, that would hang over the head of an individual seeking to be promoted in the industry for that six year period which is part of the reason why we've ended up in this situation where those regulatory references have become a relatively anodyne exercise. Yeah, and look, there are good reasons. But what we've got in the financial services sector, not just in the UK, but worldwide, is it doesn't actually conform with a functioning justice system. So what I mean by that is that in any justice system, it recognises that all of us can make mistakes, but there is then a process of actually learning from those mistakes, making amends, and sort of reincorporating ourselves as a valued member of that community. If we applied the certification and vetting that goes on and the way that people make mistakes in their careers to our marriages and to our relationships with our kids and our parents, we would then end up with any relationships. So again, there's a lack of understanding as to how a dynamic human community can actually work with each other 
when a mistake is made or when a behavior is seen to be something that needs to be stopped and improved, we're not very good in the workplace in actually dealing with it in the way that we might in our personal and civic lives. Religious practices got this right. And I'm not saying we need to adopt religion at all. I don't have any religious faith. What I'm saying is that we have, as human beings, the capacity to put up our hand, say, I've done something wrong. I know I've hurt you. I'm really sorry. How can I make it better? Where is that process in financial services regulation? If we had that process, then I think we could be much more honest about the things that we all do. We all make mistakes. We all sometimes do the wrong thing. So why don't we have that process, the capacity to put up our hand, say, I've done something wrong within firms and certainly in the way that the regulator does things. But we have this if you like this psychologist psychodrama that's driven by the media, if you know something goes wrong, there's a hunt for a perpetrator. They're hung and drawn and quartered in full public glaze. And then people feel that the problem's been fixed. It hasn't. Because the cultural circumstances that enabled that individual to do the wrong thing are still there. And this is something we've learned about for tens or even hundreds of thousands of years as a highly social species. We've learned how to do this better. The other problem is that every time we make a mistake and are not able to learn from it, we're not going to get any better. So do you see the two going hand in hand, creating culture in the regulated space in which it becomes normalised for an individual to put their hands up and say, I've done something wrong here, I apologise, how can we fix it? And the ability to learn from that error as well. Totally. We're all fallible, we all make mistakes, even with good intentions. But if we're prepared to be open and vulnerable about it, people trust us more. We cannot build trust by creating insane levels of rules and processes. That's not how we work. Mm -hmm. And you have said that you would like to see UK regulators and UK regulation move away from a focus on measuring and more a focus on getting into the weeds of businesses. How equipped do you think the UK's markets watchdog, the FCA, is to promote good cultural outcomes and police poor cultural outcomes in this city? And what could it be doing differently, if anything? It's a huge strategic mistake to put responsibility for preventing bad things happening on the regulator. The regulator should not be there to act as the secret police in a regulatory regime. It is an abrogation of the responsibilities of boards and the investors who own the stock in those companies not to do it properly themselves. The reason to do it, if you do all this stuff properly, not only will you be trusted more as an organization, you will actually optimize your profits. And my concern is if you keep telling people what to do and keep measuring them on what to do, they stop behaving as moral agents. They just become compliant robots. And all they do is just follow the rules. The problem with that is when something happens that the rules don't predict, they don't know how to act. They don't know how to deal with it. And that's why we had a banking crisis in 07 and 08. There's a fundamental error in believing that governments and regulators are responsible for the moral behavior of other citizens, full stop. I think people should be accountable jointly and severally for their actions, but the boards, the risk compliance, the internal audit functions and external auditors should be doing this job for management and for the investors. And the role of the regulator should be similar to the role of a functioning police community within any democratic state.
And I know we've got challenges now, particularly in the UK with our policing, but policing has these elements. One is community policing and crime prevention, which is Bobby's on the beat. They don't have the sort of processes and structures that you're seeing being created by regulators. And the other part of it is investigation, crime investigation, prosecution, and so on, when things do go wrong. But at the end of the day, the police are not our conscience. The police in our society do not determine morality. We determine morality. We determine what is right and wrong, and we are responsible for it. And we cannot continue believing that we're going to have a better an active services sector, a better economy and a better society without each of us taking more responsibility for our actions, learning from our mistakes and learning how to forgive ourselves and each other and doing better next time. So that was the intention of the senior managers and certification regime when it was first introduced. The intention of those rules was to place more of the onus on creating good cultural outcomes on the regulated firms themselves than on the regulator enforcing those kind of behaviours on the firms that they supervise. Mm. So if you take my analogy of looking at how an effective trusted police force operates in any society, criminals are identified prosecutors and then have to face consequences. I really don't see that happening in financial services. I remember many, many, many years ago being at a dinner where a regulator said things aren't going to change until people who do bad things in banks and insurance companies go to jail for doing the wrong thing. How many people who were jointly and perhaps should have been severally responsible for the financial crisis or systemic mis-selling of PPI have ended up paying a criminal sanction for doing something that wrong? The answer is very few. So it's about creating an environment in which it is normalised for an individual who's done something wrong to speak up, for lessons to be learned from that, and where appropriate aggressive clampdowns are followed through on to ensure that there are repercussions for particularly egregious behaviour. Absolutely, because that's how a normal society works. If you look at any society, and I know we're under pressure with all sorts of things challenging us, but if we look around us, most people we know are good people trying to do the right thing and occasionally do the wrong thing. Most of the time, that's dealt with within the community. When it's really bad, then we need help. When we need help from professional investigators and an enforcement process and a judicial system. And the problem we've got is that we are actually going backwards and we're thinking that if we create a society with regimes and all the rest of it, it's going to be better. But I think it, we really need to look at the way that power is used and misused in banks and insurers and other financial services firms and the way that power is used or abused in those that regulate those firms. The fact is that there is a criminal parasitic underclass in every community who hide in plain sight. I don't think we're really addressing identifying those people and not allowing them to go into positions of power within organisations who are, if you like, the engine of our economy. We need to find a way to have a financial services sector which is trusted deeply because people know that the people who work there are fairly paid for delivering the stuff we need in order to live our lives, raise our kids, buy homes, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. We are so far away from that, it's distressing. And we've lost sight of the common sense approaches that we've proved over centuries and millennia. So some very aspirational goals that you've referenced today. Thank you very much for your time, Roger. Thank you, Lucy. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for those great questions. 
You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.